God our Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among the, in this world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us through Jesus Christ, and that you have called us to worship you in him by your spirit. And so we are delighted that we can stand before you this day and worship you along with that host in heaven that is praising you even as we are. With lowly reverence and adoring love, we acclaim your glory and we sing your praise. For you have shown your salvation in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Come now among us by your Holy Spirit so that our worship would be true and would not be empty. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 389. This is the day the Lord has made. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we prepare to celebrate the presence of Christ in, in word and sacrament, let us call to mind and confess our sin, knowing that we are only able to come to the Lord and to hear his word, receive the sacrament by his grace, which he has given to us through Jesus Christ in forgiving our sins. Let us pray together. Almighty God, long-suffering and of great goodness, we confess to you our neglect and forgetfulness of your commandments, our wrongdoing, thinking, and speaking, the hurts we have done to others, and the good we have left undone. O oh God, forgive us, for we have sinned against you, and grant us grace to walk in newness of life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. 
Holy people, hear the good news. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sins. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Hear the words of the apostle who, uh, apostle who wrote to the church these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. A couple comments on what is what I've just read to you. Um, one is not uh, the anxiety that we often feel and the worries that we have about things that come along every day. They seem to come and, and hit us, and we can take those on and we can um, wallow in them, or we can bring our prayers to our Father as, uh, and make our supplications known to God and turn them over to Him. So encouragement to do that, to, to hear these words to do that. And then the other thing is the question is there anything good and excellent in this world? We in the Reformed tradition emphasize total depravity. Everything's been corrupted and affected by sin. But does that mean there is nothing good or excellent in the world anymore? And that's not what Paul clearly is saying here. He says, think on them. If there is any, there is. He's, he's using a form of grammar there to say if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. And there is then think on those things and seek after those things. So an encouragement also to not be a skeptic or despair of anything good and worthy in this world, but to pursue those things and dwell upon them in all different forms and, um, and fill your minds with those good things and then add to them. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 692, To You, O Lord, I Fly. and we 
Let us pray, as is our duty and our great privilege. Let us pray. Almighty God, our most blessed Father, you have shown us great compassion and true mercy and unending kindness. For you have acted for us, for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And you, we are clothed now because of him in the beauty of your grace. We find ourselves wrapped in your goodness, your patience, your love, and righteousness. We do confess that once we were dressed in the smelly rags of our sin and wretchedness, but in Christ you have dressed us in your garments of grace, and you've made us a people holy in Christ. Our thankfulness bursts from our hearts, for in Christ we are what you created us to be. Christ has made us real human beings, bearing your image. And so with heartfelt mercy and compassion, we pray for those who are still clothed in sin and brokenness, and bound up by the powers of this present age, as well as for the needs of those who share with us the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We make our prayers to you for those who protect us and who watch out for us. We pray for the soldiers, law enforcement officers, security officers. We pray for Mike and Seth, Douglas Ryan, the Hannum son, and others we know. We pray that their work would be done with care and respect for all. Thank you for the order you give to human society, moral order, so that while wickedness and sin and self-interest and exploitation do reside in this world, you provide for the general welfare of humanity. We also pray for peace and just government in other nations, not just for ourselves. We pray for that in Syria Afghanistan, Mexico, and other nations where there is violent conflict and disorder. Here are prayers for those who rule and govern us and protect us. Merciful Father, we pray for those we know who live in broken, fragmented families and communities who are exploited and abused, who make sexual immorality and hatred a way of life, We pray that the church can bring the message of Christ to them and they would be raised up into the new community of your forgiveness, grace, peace, and love in Christ. Here are our prayers for these who are in fragmented communities.
Gracious God, we pray for the Christian church. We thank you for the freedoms the church has in this country, and we pray you would stop those who want to take them away, who are standing up against the church. We pray for all the people of Christ to live for him in this world, to stand firm and to have a courage that comes from you. And we do remember the Christian communities in very uh, dangerous places in Iraq, Pakistan, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, China, Egypt, and in other countries where the Christians are threatened with physical harm and arrest. We pray you would thwart the plans of our enemies, help these Christians to respond with forbearance and love as you have loved us. Here are our prayers for churches in other nations and for our missionaries, for the Hops and the Delphils in Haiti and the Rich Lines in Uruguay. We pray for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. May our church mature in its knowledge of the gospel. May we act with humility, patience, and charity in our study of scripture and in our attitude towards other churches. May we also have that humility and charity. And when complaints and disagreements arise, may we act with kindness and, again, humility, patience, and charity. Hear our prayers. On our hearts also, Heavenly Father, are those in need within this congregation and among our friends. We pray for those in poor health or have other needs. We pray for Shirley and Terry, Jeff, Fawn, Eduardo, our friends, Becky, Kristen, Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Bill, Phil, Josh Hannum, Tom, Judy, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. For your healing, we ask. For your comfort, we ask. For good medical care, we ask. And we pray for grace to stand firm in Christ, for each of these to know Christ and be firm in him, even in weakness. Heal them, provide for their needs, and may we encourage and give them aid. Bless Providence Church to be joined together in love and peace and in our witness to Christ, and sustain us with what we need, O Father. Hear our prayers for Providence Church. To you, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do our prayers ascend, for we make them in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
to dedicate the offering. O Lord our God, you have given us life, a place to live in, and people to care for our needs. Open our eyes to each other, and also the poor, the oppressed, the alienated. Make us humble enough to help and comfort them, so that your love and justice and peace may come to them. We offer ourselves and our gifts to you and to the service of others. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray now our prayer for illumination. Father in heaven, you have provided for us your word. We pray that it would have its good and powerful effect as it is read and preached today among us and that it would our hearts would be illuminated in order to receive your word, uh, that our minds might be renewed and our faith strengthened in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is in the book of Daniel. At the end of the, toward the end of the book, chapter 12. <clears throat> At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Our Psalter response is in the bulletin. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, see my face. My heart says to you, in your face, Lord, do I see. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We wait for the Lord, be strong, and let our hearts take courage. Wait for the Lord. Our epistle reading is from Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our gospel reading is in Mark chapter 13. The first eight verses. And as he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will, be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. 
and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word of the Lord. Our three lessons, the one from Daniel, Second Peter, the epistle lesson, and our gospel lesson, all have apocalyptic language in them. Um, technically, Daniel's pre-apocalyptic, but the prophets, the late prophets, started using language that began to, to be picked up and turned into apocalyptic language later. So they all three have that, that kind of language in them. Now, our text in, in Mark 13, uh, Jesus is leaving the temple. He's been in the temple with his disciples. They've listened to his teaching while he was having the conflict with the Jewish leaders. But now they're leaving, they're moving out of the temple, and Jesus is leading them out of the temple into the larger turbulence of the city and the world. So there was definitely conflict in the temple with the Jewish leaders, but now they're going out of the temple, and there's a larger turbulence going on um, beyond it. The disciples go out into the instability of this world with Jesus, and once again, Jesus teaches his disciples about being in this world. His teaching wasn't just for them when they were around the Jewish leaders in the temple. It's beyond that for this whole world. So we are Jesus' disciples, so we give heed to his teaching as well. His teaching is for us. Whenever these apocalyptic texts come up in our readings like Mark 13, and I read somewhere, I think this is accurate, that every single writing in the New Testament has apocalyptic language in it. So it's important to understand what apocalyptic language is and not read it like some other kind of language. It's its own kind of writing, its own kind of way of speaking. But whenever these apocalyptic texts come up, such as in Mark 13, they sound fanatical. Jesus speaks of wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. We hear about those things today as well. But when you hear religious people use this kind of language, it sounds, it begins to sound fanatical. Other, religion, other religious groups have language with some of the same key words in them. Judaism uses this kind of language. One of the Jewish writings from around the four, uh, first century Ezra, four, it's 4th Ezra, it's a writing, uh, Jewish writing, it says, Behold, the days are coming when the Most High will deliver those who are on earth, and bewilderment of mind will, shall come over those who dwell on the earth, and they shall plan to make war against one another, city against city, place against place, people against people, kingdom against kingdom. And 4th Ezra has a lot of other language in it, um, but this is just one place where it speaks of war in that way. Islam also uses this language in order to talk about the end of days. It has the sound of overly, overly religious interpretation of events. Such language is electrically charged, the portents and signs of divine corruption in the world. It's as if God was unhinging the frames that hold the world together. That's, that's sort of the imagery that you get with this kind of language. Now, it sounds strange to us, and maybe even more strange to us, because we've grown accustomed to our modern language about wars and earthquakes and famines. Wars are said to be indicative of national self-interest or protection from evil designs or because of evil designs or because of just raw power. Did you know that there are more than 40 
wars or armed conflicts going on in the world right now, around the world, 40 of them. You don't usually hear about all 40, or maybe you think some of those that you thought had stopped haven't stopped. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has drawn much of the attention for the moment. And one explanation, this is sort of the kind of modern take you get on these things, one explanation of Russia's aggression is that Putin wants to restore the borders of the old Soviet Union. Do you know that he was the head of the Stasi in East Germany before the, the wall came down, before uh, the Soviet Union collapsed? He was in charge of the Stasi, which is the secret police in East Germany. So because this might be, who knows, but it might be Putin's plan, uh, Poland and Finland are alarmed, as would you be if you were a neighbor of Russia, and they're interested in joining NATO. So there's a modern kind of explanation of wars. It's the sort of explanation we hear a lot. Earthquakes. Geologists explain them to us. Earthquakes are usually caused when rock underground suddenly breaks along a fault. This sudden release of energy causes the seismic waves that make the ground shake. Now, scientists measure and track this kind of thing. At one, one time, I actually looked up how many earthquakes, and you don't even want to know how many earthquakes are happening right now across the world. They just, you know, there are all these um, seismographs that, 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 see, uh, that can, can uh, sense these kinds of things. There's just a lot of them. The Earth is a very moving kind of uh, object. But the scientists warned that we will, there will be an increase in earthquakes because the equator is shrinking due to a slightly slower rotation of the earth. Just a little bit slower rotation, and you get some changes in the earth's crust. So earthquakes are part of life, and basically the scientific um, information so basically implies get used to it. It's, it they're, they're there. And then there are famines, and you hear the modern language about famines. Famines are caused by lack of water, um, sometimes, or a lot of times. Lack of water, you can't grow the crops, so you have the, the animals are dying. I think I heard in western Kansas, where I pastored a church, they lost a huge amount of cattle because of uh, low uh, rainfall, low water out there, like thousands and thousands of cattle. But that, that does happen, but many of the famines are because of governments, that displace people, chase people out, or these conflicts chase people out, and they end up in an area where there isn't much food, and there's no way to really maintain their herds, and so they're, they're uh, starving. Or policies that leave crops to wither, as well as lack of education in productive farming techniques. And now, what do we have? We have the supply chain problem. So all of these things can feed into and, and exacerbate famines. So when we hear apocalyptic language speaking of war and earthquakes and famines like we do in the Gospel of Mark, it sounds religiously over the top for us because we're so used to the modern kinds of explanations. And yet, even scientific-minded people today who would push this text away, it's a bunch of religious hype, they still have serious worries that our world is going to crack apart. And so it, very often when science begins talking about these things or science is used by some to talk about it, it begins to move over into the language of apocalyptic. You begin to hear sort of the apocalyptic language even with science that the earth will collapse in a heap of smoldering ruin 
or we will choke to death on carbon dioxide and methane. In other words, what are they talking about? An end about our existence, human existence, and the earth coming to an end. We are given more and more reason to feel insecure and anxious about an approaching doomsday. Science hasn't really helped, even with its own language, with that. We get anxious about it, and we worry about it. Well, in the church, there's another take on this. There are actually a lot of different ways that that texts like this have been interpreted. Some Christians seem to thrive on the apocalyptic. That's sort of their default, their go-to. And so they... they, um, they really dig into it when they hear this kind of language. They hope to see God rip open the heavens and shake up the earth. They're looking for that. I'm not sure they want what they're, what they're uh, after, but that's what they hope to see. So texts like Mark 13 and the book of Revelation are familiar waters to them. What are familiar texts or, or books, writings for Reformed churches? Probably books... I would say books like Romans, Ephesians, maybe the Gospel of John. These are the kind of books we know well and we enjoy going into and reading and studying. But for those who just eat up apocalyptic texts, they would go to Revelation or Mark 13. They, would, they enjoy the text that we have and they, they dissect it and they try to pick it all apart. Most of us may not be sure just what to do with Jesus' discourse on the end. But there are those who, that doesn't stop them, they go right into it. So our Lord Jesus Christ sits down with us this morning to teach us about the end in God's salvation. There are those who turn biblical apocalypse into a quest. They thrive on conspiracy theories, and the only thing that satisfies them about politics and social change is the end of the world. So whenever there's political upheaval or social change going on, for them, it, it, it goes into uh, the end of the world. Most of us recognize a little more complexity than that in our world. In this world, there are political policies, principles of government, biological processes, and moral views of life that affect what happens. And most of the time, we, we realize that and take that into account. But those who want to look, for the, look to, to some kind of an end for everything that's going on and going wrong they jump past a lot of that and just get right to the catastrophe and the crises. Really, what all of us want is to feel secure in this world. That's what we want. For example, when we walk among the great monuments in our nation's capital, those solid, sturdy memorials give us a sense of security in this country. They've been there for quite a few years. They, They give us a sense of stability and permanence. On the wall in the Lincoln Memorial are the words of President Lincoln that our nation is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And that gives us a sense of confidence in the democratic system. Across the serene waters is the memorial for Thomas Jefferson who helped create the Constitution of the United States, which sets all kinds of balances and restrictions on governmental power because of the principle that government exists for the good of society, not the society for the government. And we sometimes wish the government would remember that a little bit better, but that's it. The government exists for the good of society, and that's, that's enshrined in our Constitution. And that, the fact that we have a Constitution like that, even if we feel like it's being assailed, still gives us a sense of some security and stability. Everywhere you look at the west end of the mall in Washington, D.C., so down towards, more towards the Lincoln Memorial, there are memorials to soldiers, all kinds of memorials. I go, whenever I go back there, I see a new one. 
the Korean War, the Vietnam War, all these different monuments to, to um, remind us of our armed forces and our nation's commitment to protect us from foreign invaders and the destruction of freedom. And then, of course, the Constitution of the United States is on display. We can go over to the National Archives building and it guarantees us rights of freedom. The foundations of our security in this country are firmly set in place, and we see the great memorials of, of this to this effect in Washington. So why am I telling you all that? Because that's exactly how the disciples felt when they were standing in front of the temple. It was the same for them. In our reading from Mark, one of Jesus' disciples said to him as he turned around and looked at the temple structure behind him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, architecturally speaking, it was impressive. It, 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 I don't know if it's actually classified as one of the wonders of the world. Somehow I have it in my head that it was the ancient wonders of the world. But if it wasn't, it certainly came close. The temple had been rebuilt bigger and more solid than it was before. So you know that the first temple had been destroyed. The second temple was built even bigger and stronger. And then Herod was adding on to it. So Josephus, a Jew who lived at this time, described the massive stones of the temple. He says the largest ones were, and this is in cubits, not feet. Cubit, I think, was about 18 inches long. But 25 by 8 by 12 was one stone at the base of the temple. Okay? So that's about 38 feet long by 12 feet wide by 18 feet high. That's big. The dimension, that, that is roughly half the size of the sanctuary for one stone. Now, Josephus, being a writer in his day, wanting to be impressive about the temple, probably exaggerated a little bit, but let's just down, tune it down a little bit. Even with his exaggeration, that's still a massive stone, just one. Not only was it enormous, the temple was ornamented and the stones were ornamented with marble. So on the outside, there was marble attached to it. Gold leaf on the front, hopefully maybe eight feet high, so people like me couldn't come by and pick some of it off. Gold leaf was on the front. What did that do? Well, it reflected the sun's rays. It made the temple dazzling in the light. So for the Jewish people, this was not just an architectural marvel. The temple was a sign of God's presence with them. You see, it wasn't just, just uh, like we might be impressed by the monuments in D.C., you know, that these are here, we have these institutions that are, that are set in place. It was more than that. It meant God was present with them. In the days of King Solomon, God's glory had descended upon the temple. Remember that, 1 Kings 8? The temple's built, it's being dedicated, and then the cloud of God's glory comes down and descends upon it. Wow, that's impressive. First King tells us that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It was so glorious, the priests were kind of pushed out. The temple meant that God was with his people. So even though Israel had sinned against God and incurred his wrath, even though their land had been invaded by foreign powers, even though there was economic hardship, the people with the temple there could feel secure. God would protect and deliver them. Yes, he had judged them. He had been angry at them uh, in, their, in their history, in their past, but he was their God. He was in covenant with them, and they could count on his ultimately protecting and delivering them. So this is what made Jesus' response so troubling. Do you see these great buildings, he said? There will be not 
there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, the stones of this temple will be ripped down and, and raised to the ground. The temple will be raised, the stones pulled off each other, the gold stripped off, all the fine ornaments taken away. Jesus declares to us that the institutions and bases of the security that we have in this world are under the judgment of God. So it starts at home with the temple, but there it is, the base of their security, the institution that reflected that security very strongly for the Jewish people, and Jesus is saying it's under the judgment of God. And if the temple... Where God, that God had instructed Israel to build and that, his, that he was pleased to, to reside and be present, if that's going to be destroyed, well, then what about all the other institutions and monuments and bases of our security in this world? So Jesus minces no words. God's judgment would come upon the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Judgment comes. The temple was not permanent. As with all the other institutions and symbols of of security, of our security in this world, they are under God's judgment. Our security cannot be based upon them. Now, I feel what you feel. When I go to Washington, D.C., when I go to the mall, I take pride in our country. I see the great things that have been done. Is it a perfect country? No. Have we made serious mistakes in our society? Yes. Have we had to grow and mature and, and battle through a number of things? Yes. But I take great pride in what our country has accomplished and the security that we have here and how there are freedoms, real freedoms for people. And so I, I uh, feel all that as well. But our security cannot be based upon these things. They'll not hold up. They will give way. Jesus has come to break our bedazzled confidence in the institutions of this world and to set our confidence on the true security that underlies this world in our very lives. So you see what's happening here? With his teaching, he is shifting the disciples and your security away from the things that we've created in this world to him and to the very basis of our, of our true existence. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, The vast size and wealth of the temple, like a veil hung before the eyes of the disciples, did not permit them to elevate their faith to the true reign of Christ. In other words, they were looking at these things and their faith was inhibited to look, instead to look at the Lord Jesus Christ as the basis of their security. So Jesus affirms that these things which occupy their attention will quickly perish. The Constitution of the United States is a great and wonderful document. It is head and shoulders above many other political contracts. The United States is a great nation. Our military is the most powerful in the world, we think. But none of these are permanent. Our security cannot ultimately rest on them. God is the one who makes us secure, nothing else. And if we're not careful, these other things will slip in there and try to take that place, take the place of God. In the church, when the walls of our security start to come apart, then we are susceptible to being misled. Jesus cares about us, so he warns his followers. He warns us. He warns us of false messiahs. Take heed that no one leads you astray. There will be those who come in his name. Not the name of Jesus. You know, there are lots of Jesuses in the world. Jesus is usually the way it's pronounced. Lots of them. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that name. He's talking about the name Christ, Messiah, Savior. 
they will come and say, I am the one who can save you. Most immediately in the days of the early church, there were those in Palestine who claimed to be the anointed one of God. There were a lot of messiahs running around, people who claimed to be um, that, that a designated savior of the Jewish people, and that they would make the people secure. Bar Kokhba was one of them at the end of the first century, uh, took a number of, of uh, Jewish zealots out into the wilderness to try to stand up against Rome, failed, but he was out there making his speech. And it doesn't just stop in the first century. Throughout history, there have always been those who claim to do what only God can do. They claim to bring world peace, to end hunger, to give justice for all, to defeat evil. In short, they claim to ensure the blessings of God for us, because those are blessings from God. There's nothing wrong with aspiring for those things, but to actually bring it, do you really promise that you're going to establish these things? Because these are blessings of God. World peace, end hunger, justice for all, defeat evil. We could add to that, remove sin, etc. So these uh, promises, these people come along every so often saying, follow me, I will give you security. And they, they tailor their message so that it attracts certain people. But they do. And we'd like to believe them. People in our country would like to believe them. Who does not want all these things? So we get these leaders who come along and we, we follow after them. But they can't deliver what they promise in any kind of a per- permanent way. Because they're not the Christ sent by God to deliver us from our sin. We need outside help. We don't need help that rises from within us because every single one of us is part of the problem. So when you get a leader who rises up, someone claiming to be that promised savior for you, rising up from within society, from within human history, you can count on them being part of the problem. Maybe they're good leaders, but in some way they're contributing to the mess. We need someone to come from the outside, and that one is our true savior. God sends the true savior to us, the Christ to us, to deliver us. Ironically, Jesus says the false messiahs, the false messiahs will be more popular, while the one true messiah will be rejected, which is truly ironic. Jesus gives his warning about false messiahs, and he also warns us about believing the events of this world are the end, with a capital E, the big end, doomsday. He warns us about believing the events of this world are the end. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. And the way some people read this is it's a timetable. So you have these things happen, and then then you have the big end. But I want you to think for a minute about how Jesus is saying that the end is not these things. The end will come, so it's not yet, but it's not these things. These things are not the end. So it's a different way of of hearing it. This is apocalyptic language, as I said. The wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. Jesus is using apocalyptic language. So this kind of literalness about it is really missing much of what Jesus is saying. It's not that he's saying there won't be wars and things. It's not like that. It's just the way it's being used. In the Bible, these are signs that God is shaking up the world. That's what apocalyptic shows, disruption. Things being shaken up, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. 
It's language of God's judgment and the restoration of his creation. And those who sit comfortably in this world, and it's very easy for us to do that, who listen only to scientists, don't see these events as signs. They don't hear them as apocalyptic language. They just hear them as uh, you know, natural wonders, natural events, or maybe not natural in the case of a war, human cause. But they don't see them as signs. But that's what Jesus is saying. These are signs. Those who listen to the word of God and have had to endure unjust governments, persecution, violent conflict, they're looking for God to intervene. It's very easy to sit around when you have a comfortable life and, and hear about these events and go, oh, well, I guess we'll go help clean up that disaster or we'll, uh, you know, I'm glad it didn't hit me. Um, I get to go on with my happy life. But if you're in a place where you're being attacked persecuted, living under a a truly evil, unjust government, violent conflicts going on all around you, you're looking for divine intervention. And you're going to hear these things the way Jesus intends them, as a sign, a sign of something. So for a long time, Israel looked for God to work through the ordinary institutions of their nation. When things were easy and peaceful, they looked for God to work through the priesthood, to work through the temple sacrifices, the dynasties of the kings. But after the temple was destroyed and the kings repeatedly sinned against God and foreign armies dominated the land and people were carried away, then the Jews began to look for God's great intervention. And the prophets spoke of this. The time would come when God would break into this world and make things right. So at the very end of Daniel, it says, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has since been uh, as never has been since on such as never has been since there was a nation till this time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. You see, they're looking for the sign of God's intervention for deliverance. So Jesus warns us against identifying the crisis events of this world with the end. Don't, don't make the step of moving from these are signs of something, apocalyptic language, to this is the end. We had a massive earthquake over here. It's the end. It's all over. That's Jesus saying, don't do that. Wars, famines, earthquakes are horrible disruptions in this world. All of us can see the displaced people, the cities in ruin, the agony, the bewilderment of lives that have been devastated. All of us can see that through the media, maybe personally. And when the crises of this world take place, we want God to intervene. When our financial institutions are shaking, when governmental power seems to be out of control, when horrible acts of violence occur, like the one in Uvalde, Texas, if you lived in that community, you might be thinking a little bit differently about all this, then we want God to rip open the heavens and do something. We want God to break in and intervene. Looking at the crisis events in this world, we might very well think that this is the end. God's doing it now. This is the end because there's an earthquake. Because this horrible thing has happened. This is it. And just to give us a little nudge in that direction are all those people out there declaring to us that it is the end. So you get a little encouragement to think this way. It's the end of the world. Whether they're Christian or secular or what, it's the end of the world. If we make this connection between the crisis event and the end of the world, we're going to be disappointed. Over and over again, disappointed, horribly disappointed. Disappointed that God did not rip open the heavens and do something. I thought this was it. I thought this, this terrible 
catastrophe was God ripping open the heavens, and yet things keep going on. How many times have the gurus of the end of the world told us that the end is here only for history to continue? Over and over again, they make the crisis events of the world the end, and they're wrong. So Jesus comforts us. He says, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pains. It's not the birth. The disruptions of this world are not the end, but they point to the end. God is working out his plan to set the world right and make all things new in Jesus Christ. So they are signs. They function that way. They show us that that things are being disrupted and God will one day, uh, Christ will return and the world will be set right and there will be this major disruption from the way the world is today. So the crises that we see are signs of that, but they're not that thing, that, that event. Looking for God's intervention in the crises of this world, if we do that, if we start looking for him in those things, then we'll miss God's great intervention. Jesus Christ is God's end, capital E, for this world. The Son of God who came and died on the cross and was raised. You see, there you see the end. God has done something in this world. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who has taken up our sin. He has revealed his authority and power over injustice and evil. He has reconciled us to God. He has shaken up this world. Isn't it interesting we, we see an earthquake shaking up the world more than Jesus' death and resurrection? That's what shook up this world. And he will return, and all wars will stop, and all famines will cease, and the earth will shake no more. Because Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior who restores this sinful world. So Jesus Christ encourages us. The crises of this world do not mean that the world or history is on the precipice looking into oblivion about to be swallowed up and then we're gone. No, the crises of this world point to God's judgment and restoration of this world in Jesus Christ. It's a different way of looking at it. You're going to have to break out of your scientific, secular way of thinking, which we've all been influenced by, and see these instead as signs pointing to the end, but they're not the end. They're full of promise. That doesn't mean that there isn't great suffering and pain in them, but but as a sign, they're full of promise that God is at work for us through Jesus Christ, that God has an end for us. That is, uh, that is for our good. So the next time someone tells you that some crisis in our world is the end, don't believe them. And that's going to be hard for you to do because it looks very real. Climate warming, um, the stock market tanking, recession coming along, China's power increasing, all these things going on. It's hard not to see those things. as That's the end. We're at the end of it. Or when you're tempted to believe that some catastrophe in the world is the end, don't believe it. With faith in Jesus Christ, he is our end. If there's one thing the sermon, I hope, does for you, is to shift your attention to Jesus Christ as our end and to look to him as our end and pull you away from looking at all these other things as your end. He's the one who makes us feel secure. So trust him. And in the words of Daniel, you will shine like the brightness of the firmament. Trusting in him, you're no longer going to be dragged down by, by despair and, and you know, all the, the, the troubles that you have. He's your end. And so then you can begin to smile and light up and be bright in this world. 
It's easy to despair in our world with all the wars and famines and earthquakes and other crises, but Jesus has set out for us God's good end. And you're not just to believe this and keep it to yourself. We're to bear witness to the good end of Jesus by not creating conflicts. See, we have a way of participating in this. By not, by not creating conflicts, we're not saying these are our end, we're going to add to it so that we all kind of reach the end quicker. Instead, we're to be trying to help stop conflicts, which points to the good end of Jesus Christ, because that's what he will do. He will stop the conflicts. We're to feed the hungry, help people rebuild after the earthquakes, because all of this points to what Christ will accomplish. We can't accomplish it, only he can, but we can participate in the signs of God setting things right in this world. So these, these crisis events are not the end, but Jesus is the end. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who causes all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them and read them and mark and learn and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, who is Jesus Christ, and who is given to us as our Savior and our Messiah. He who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 92, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Today we collect our diaconal offering. If the ushers can please come forward to collect that offering. Let us pray the prayer for the diaconal together. Gracious God, our offerings proclaim that work and worship are one, that life is undivided. Use these gifts for your church's ministries of proclamation, reconciliation, service, and mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's table where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord and where we have true fellowship with one another. We are brought together here in what um, a confession might say, a mystical way, in a way that's beyond our senses, um, although we see it to some degree. But we are brought together in a very powerful, living way here at this table because our Lord is present. And so we are brought together and made uh, secured as members of his one body. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he also took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all who have been baptized and publicly professed their faith and who, have, who are communicant members in good standing of the Christian church. Now you are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ. We don't come here casually. We are invited. These gifts are set before us and our Lord invites us. But we come believing that he is our Lord and our Savior. We also have a sorrow for our sin. We want to turn away from our sin and not live that life, but live according to our Lord and his righteousness. We rely completely upon God's grace to live that life. We cannot do it perfectly, but we know that our Lord has now adopted us as his children, and so we can be comfortable and know that we are set free to live for obedience. We are to lead a godly life in peace with and love toward our brothers and sisters. Christian people, today we have been reminded that Jesus Christ is our end, not the crises in this world, and that includes God's judgment. God's judgment is not the end for us but his eternal life. This day we have confessed our sins, received God's forgiveness, and heard God's call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him, and strengthened by the sacrament, rejoice in your good, and instead of despairing over the turmoil around us, rejoice that, that Jesus Christ is our end, and there are good things for us that will last forever. Come to this meal with joy, knowing that what you have heard is true. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice in your behalf. Be strengthened by his gifts and find you the grace you need to follow where he leads. Because after all, this is a means of grace. It's a means, an instrument that God uses to bring grace to us and to strengthen us to serve him. Now join with me in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. 
and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Almighty God, good Father to us all, your face is turned toward your world. You have not abandoned us. In love you gave us Jesus, your Son, to rescue us from sin and death. And your word goes out to call us home to that city where angels sing your praise. We join with them in that song. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Father of all, we give you thanks for every gift that comes from heaven. But we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, who into the darkness of this world came as your light. With the grace of your salvation and the gospel word, he touched those who were unclean and sinful, and he washed the guilty clean. We remember how the crowds came out to see your son, and yet in the, at the, by the time they got to the cross, they turned on him. On the night he was betrayed, he came to table with his friends to celebrate the freedom of your people. Jesus blessed you, Father, for the food. He took bread, he gave thanks, and gave it to his disciples. He also gave the cup to his disciples and said, Do this in remembrance of me. And therefore, Father, with this bread and this cup, we celebrate the cross in which he died to set us free from sin. To find death, he rose again and is alive with you to plead for us and your whole church. By your Spirit, uniting us with Christ, may our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup be for us a communion in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we and all who share this food offer ourselves to live for you and be welcomed at your feast in heaven where all of creation worships you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With one voice we offer our thanksgiving and together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. We give you eternal praise and thanks, O Heavenly Father, that you have drawn us poor sinners to your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and have again imparted to us the true communion that he gives. And we ask you, grant to us that this holy communion may always be effective and strong in us, so that in true faith, propriety, patience, and love, also with diligence, we may lead a new and heavenly life, wholly pleasing to you, to your praise and honor, and for the edification of our neighbor. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 580, Lead On, O King Eternal.
Good morning. I would like to point your attention briefly to our calendar of events in the insert in the bulletin. Um, we will have, starting with classes, we will have our uh, Christian Ed class this morning. Wednesday, or excuse me, <laughs> Thursday. Uh, women's prayer meeting is on August 11th at the Roberts home. Please keep in mind the outreach beginning at Lawrence Tech uh, University starting this fall. Actually, I think starting with a, an information table at an event prior to school starting in August, but hopefully ongoing into the fall at Lawrence Tech. Um, next Sunday, Pastor Jeff will be away, and Steve Gonzalez will be with us preaching the word. So that's next week, and that's it. For- fellowship lunch. Oh, fellowship lunch next week. Okay, right. Very good. Thank you. You're dismissed. <laughs>